people will please join me now in Matthew chapter 5. We're re-entering our Lord's Sermon on the Mount. We come to a passage where Jesus is going to tell us why he came. He had just told his disciples while they, why they were there. Remember, he told them and us, you're the salt of the earth. That's why you're here. You're the light of the world. That's why you're here. And now he's going to say, and let me remind you why I am here. This is Matthew 5. Let's pick up now together verse 17 and following. Jesus said, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until it's all accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. First of all, I want you to see that Jesus proclaims here that he came to fulfill and to complete the old covenant. Jesus came to complete and fulfill the Old Testament. So Jesus does not want to be misunderstood as he begins his ministry. He's not there to reject the law of God. Exact opposite is what he has in mind. He's here to fulfill it. He's going to fulfill the law. So how so? How will Jesus fulfill all of the old covenant law and the prophets? Well, in two profound ways. First of all, Jesus was fully obedient to the law. And he's the only one who was ever fully obedient to all of the law. Praise him because of his complete holiness. Jesus, think about it, in his entire life did not break one law of God. There was not a single incidence of sin in the life of Jesus Christ. Nobody like Jesus ever. In fact, let's contrast Jesus and his perfect obedience to our not so perfect obedience. Let me ask you, have you kept all of the law of God at all times in your life? None of us can say yes, but just in case somebody is thinking, I think I did. Have you ever used God's name in vain? Ever. Have you ever coveted? You saw something that somebody else had and you wanted that. Have you ever stolen anything? Have you ever told a lie at any point in your life? Have you perfectly honored your father and your mother as the Ten Commandments call for? And so you and I, when we answer this question, we look at Jesus' perfect obedience in his entire life, and we look at ourselves, well, I'm going to have to answer that question a little more selectively than Jesus would have to answer it. I could say I kept some of the laws some of the time. I was somewhat obedient at different times, but not so much in other ways. So when we come to the law of God, we find that it exposes us. And it humbles us. In fact, the prophets, we're talking about the law and the prophets, these humble us. Consider this, Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And we say, even that I have not perfectly fulfilled in my life. I haven't humbly walked with God all of my life. And so the law shows our guilt, and the law shows our need for mercy, but not so with Jesus. 
Jesus lived in complete obedience to the Father, and he taught that people should be completely obedient to the Father. So we're just talking about how can Jesus say that he fulfilled the old covenant? How did he fulfill the law and the prophets? Because he fully obeyed the law and the prophets. Secondly, Jesus fulfilled the purpose of the law. I'm stunned by both of these realities. The first one's thrilling, perfect, perfect obedience, but now this is this is equally thrilling, maybe even more so, that he fulfilled the purpose of the law, meaning Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. That Jesus brought the fruition, God's intention for the law. So the phrase, the law and the prophets, refers to the entirety of the Old Testament. Jesus not only affirmed and obeyed that law when he was on the earth, but he is the fulfillment of all of that. So consider it this way. He's the fulfillment of every promise given to us in the Old Covenant. Think about all those messianic prophecies telling us a Savior's coming. Jesus says, I'm fulfilling all that. All those promises are fulfilled in me. It's a stunning statement he's making. Jesus is the hope of the Jewish people. They were waiting for the Messiah. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those promises. In other words, the prophets, who had they been talking about all along? They've been talking about this one that we know as Jesus. So think of it. Jesus is not merely a teacher who came to bring another twist to the teaching of the law. Jesus was not another prophet who came to give us a little additional light on the law. Jesus didn't even come to bring us extra laws, but he is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament scriptures. In fact, Jesus knew this and spoke this way, not just here in the Sermon on the Mount, but listen to this. In Luke 24, verse 27, after his resurrection on the road to Emmaus, listen to this. This is Luke 24, 27. Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Jesus knew all the scriptures pointed to him. He's the fulfillment. Or John 5, 39. To the Pharisees, Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. So Jesus alone can take up the word of God and say, it all points here. It all points to me. He is the fulfillment. So for the Pharisees, they looked at the law as an end to itself. That it's about keeping the rules. It's about the rituals. But not understanding that the purpose of the law was to show God's righteous and reasonable standards. And at the same time, expose that no human being has been able to keep that law. And so we need a savior is what the law proclaims. So the, the law is not the savior. It tells us we need one. And the prophets weren't the Savior. They're telling us God is going to give you a Savior. And it's not us. It's one who's coming. And it is indeed Jesus. And so this has a bearing on how you and I read the Old Covenant, knowing it's a fulfilled covenant in Jesus Christ. One scholar said it this way. Every Old Testament text must be viewed in the light of Jesus' person and ministry and the changes introduced by the new covenant he inaugurated. So when you're picking up the Old Testament, and you should pick up and read the Old Testament, you're in places like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Micah or Genesis. When you read it, though, you would want to remember, okay, I'm reading a covenant that has been fulfilled in Jesus. So this whole covenant is pointing ahead to Jesus. It's helpful. It, it really reminds me like when you're starting to cook in the kitchen, and it's helpful when you're starting a recipe. It's helpful if you can maybe know what the name of this recipe is, because when you're just looking at the ingredients list alone, you're like, I don't know where we're going here. But if you at least know the name of the recipe, oh, I got it. I know what we're doing. But especially if you have a picture, like I, I see all these ingredients are going to, we're going to end up with that picture. 
Maybe another analogy would be when you're putting together a puzzle. You, you don't want to just dump out the puzzle pieces and have no idea what the picture is, right? It's very confusing if you don't take the box of the puzzle. Where is this thing going? Oh, I see the picture. So when you take up the Old Covenant, and that is God's Word as well, but when you read it, you want to read, okay, I see where this is going. This, the completed picture of this, the fulfillment of this is Jesus. And so these different pieces I'm reading, the different parts of history, how God's preserving a people, He's promised a Savior. I see this, I know now, and it's going to have its culmination in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of the Scripture. Second thing I want you to notice is this, Jesus affirms the Scripture. And you and I want to have Jesus' view of the Word of God. Look at, with me back at verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until it's all accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Did you notice here that Jesus did not have a low view of Scripture? He's not at all saying, you know what, I've come and we're just going to throw out the law. It's not how Jesus approached the old covenant. We're not discarding it. He said in verse 17, I'm not here to abolish this good law that God gave. I'm not here. That word abolish means to invalidate. I'm not invalidating it. We're not dismissing it. Now what Jesus did do, he dismissed the traditions of the scribes and Pharisees. And that's why he's making it clear. I am dismissing, I am abolishing man-made rules that have been thrown and heaped on top of the good law of God, but I'm not abolishing the law. I'm going to actually fulfill it for you. Jesus uses some very specific language here. The King James uses the words jot and tittle. The New American Standard uses the words smallest letter and stroke, which is actually a better rendering. So the, he mentions here even the word iota. That's the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet. That's the word here. It corresponds with the Hebrew yod, the smallest letter. So Jesus is saying, I'm not even abolishing the smallest letter in the alphabet used to write the law. We're not abolishing. We're fulfilling it. And a tittle, what's a tittle in the King James? Well, literally, as the New American Standard translates, it's a stroke of the pen. So like when you and I are writing, one example would be when you're making a capital P in English, and then you want to make that into an R. You, you do a stroke of the pen. You draw that line going down. That's what Jesus is talking about. So, so not even a, a small letter, not even a stroke of the pen is going to be abolished. I'm not invalidating it. I am going to perfectly fulfill it for you in my life and in my death and in my resurrection. So Jesus had a high view of Scripture as he fulfilled the law of God. Let's remind ourselves that we must have the same view of Scripture as Jesus. If Jesus is your Lord, you don't want to say, well, I just believe what Jesus said, and I renounce the old covenant. I don't like the old covenant. Or you can't say, I, I like the words of Jesus, but I, I just dismiss and abolish what Paul said on different topics. You can't, you can't do that. That's not how Jesus, your Savior, your Lord, taught you to look at the law of God. You can't just cast it off. It, it cannot be abolished. It is God's eternal word. But the old covenant Jesus himself has fulfilled. You, you need to know that because we do live in a time when there are many who would love to cast doubt on the scriptures. There are many people who call themselves Christians or saying, I just don't go with that part of the Bible. I don't think that's true anymore. Have you ever heard that? Especially moral teachings of the scripture. Well, that's, that can't be so. Uh, but yet, notice Jesus' high view of scripture. And those of us who follow him should have that same corresponding high view of scripture. However, we don't have that high view of man's tradition that sometimes thrown on Scripture, and you and I need to be able to discern the difference with that. 
And so we think about the man-made traditions, and John MacArthur is helpful here. He describes how the rabbis of that time would add on really strenuous extra rules that God never intended. So listen to this. He says, the rabbis looked through the Scripture to find various commands and regulations, and to those they would add supplemental requirements. To the command not to work on the Sabbath, they added the idea that carrying a burden was a form of work. Then they faced the question of determining exactly what constituted a burden. They decided that a burden is food enough to the weight of a fig, enough wine for mixing in a goblet, milk enough for one swallow, honey enough to put on a wound, oil enough to anoint a small member of the body, water enough to moisten eye salve, paper enough to write a customs house notice, ink enough to write two letters of the alphabet, read enough to make a pen, and so on and so on. To carry anything more than those prescribed amounts on the Sabbath was to break the law. That's ridiculous. That's not a fault with the law. That's what the Pharisees and the scribes heaped on top of for the people. Can you imagine, all right, how much am I carrying today on the Sabbath? Wait a minute, this is a little bit more than a fig. I'm breaking the Sabbath. That was never in there. How tedious that would be. And that's why it's so stunning when we read the Gospels and Jesus does these amazing things on the Sabbath, healing people on the Sabbath. That was never against the law of God. But the Pharisees were offended. How dare he heal somebody on the Sabbath? And then when the person Jesus healed would pick up their mat, they were crippled their whole lives, and Jesus heals them. They pick up their mat, and the Pharisees go, hey, you can't carry that. You who were crippled your whole life, so lost with their traditions. They couldn't see what God was doing right in front of them. So listen, you and I need to make sure we can see the difference between what God has said and maybe one of your opinions or one of my opinions. Can you see the difference? What has God said? Or what's a tradition that's been added on. Sometimes they're nice traditions, but wait a minute, am I gonna be upset because somebody didn't fulfill a tradition of the way we always did it when you go, wait a minute, but the scripture never made a big deal about that. So we must be as discerning light, otherwise we become legalists. We begin to hold people to a standard that God didn't ever call for in the word of God. Our heart should be this way. I want us to follow God's word. Even if my personal preferences are not met, that is far secondary. I just want the word of God lifted up. I want to obey what the word says, even if my preferences are not met. Now, here's a practical word for us. As we consider the old covenant now having been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So we live after the resurrection of Jesus. He did indeed fulfill it. So how then do you and I read the old covenant? We talked about that. Jesus is the final picture. But let's ask some practical questions. So yes, we read and teach the Old Testament, but by interpreting it through Christ who fulfilled it. How about those ceremonial laws and the sacrificial system? When I read those, what do I do? Those are commands. What do I do? Well, we understand those commands were fulfilled in Christ. We're not under those ceremonial laws. We're not under the sacrificial system. I noticed that nobody brought a goat this morning for sacrifice. No sheep. None of those things. Nothing for sacrifice. Why not? Because Jesus was the once and for all sacrifice when he poured out his precious blood on the cross. Never a need for another one. If somebody were to bring a sheep and slaughtered it somewhere on the property, it would help us none. (laughs) That blood of a sheep would never help. It was always, all those sacrifices were pointing ahead to the final sacrifice in Christ. We read in the New Testament that circumcision, no longer something that God's people should do. Jesus has fulfilled the law. How about those dietary laws? You are welcome to go get barbecue this afternoon in the new covenant. 
He's not binding on us. We read about that in the New Testament. So Jesus fulfilled the new covenant and he ushered in, fulfilled the old, he ushers in the new covenant that we now live in. So what about the moral laws? Well, here's the good news about the moral laws. Those moral laws, we don't have to go search the Old Testament for those. The moral laws have been restated in the new covenant. And so what about sexual immorality? Well, yes, that's talked about a lot in the old covenant. And those same prohibitions against sexual immorality have been restated for us in the new covenant. So we can say, how do I live? I go to the new covenant. As one in the new covenant, I know how to live. So which commands of the Old Testament should I follow? Easy answer, the ones restated for me in the new covenant. So which, which laws? When God gives them to you in the new covenant, there you go. And the, all the moral law has come over there. So Jesus came to fulfill the law. And then this, Jesus came to make us righteous. Verse 20 is key. I want you to hear the gravity of verse 20. Jesus says this, it's strong. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Do you hear that? Jesus is telling you, here's how you will not go to heaven. And I bet everybody in the room here, I, I want to make sure I'm among those who's going to live forever in heaven. Jesus said, if you want to go to heaven, you must have a greater righteousness than that of these Pharisees. Now, that would have been a shocking statement to those hearing that in the first century. That would be an unimaginable standard because the Pharisees were known for being strict rule keepers, as we've already described. They added extra rules that they were trying to keep. So if, if somebody were to hear that first, whoa, they are the righteous ones in our culture. I don't know how I could be, I could follow more rules than them, but that's not the point. Nobody was more religious than the Pharisees. Nobody a, a better rule keeper. They were known for their long prayers. Remember, Jesus warned about their showing off their prayers. They memorized the Torah. These were impressive in terms of what they did. But listen, their hearts were darkened. We see it over and over again. The back, they could be so blind. The Messiah is right in front of them, and they don't recognize him. The problem with the Pharisees and their version of righteousness was that it was very selective, and it was very external. Just the stuff we do, but their hearts were dark. And remember, Jesus said, you're like whitewashed tombs. You're like a pretty tombstone with dead man's bones inside. It was all external. One scholar said it this way. As a general rule, the Pharisees were self-righteous and smug in their delusion that they were pleasing God by keeping the law or parts of it. As Jesus pointed out to them, however scrupulous they were in following the finer points of ritualism, they failed to measure up to God's standard of holiness. Remember, Jesus on one occasion said, you've, neg you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. So Jesus, when he talks about you've got to have a surpassing righteousness than this external only that you see in the Pharisees, he's saying it's got to be, it's got to be internal. God demands righteousness. A person must be righteous in order to go to heaven. And here's the good news. Jesus provides the righteousness. It's a righteousness we can't accomplish for ourselves. No amount of works could do it. We needed it done for us. And so righteousness comes through faith in Jesus. Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus is the source of the righteousness you and I need for salvation. How can he do it? Because as we proclaim, Jesus lived perfectly. He was righteous inside and out. And he died a perfect death on the cross. A righteous one dying for unrighteous people like all of us. And all of our punishment was 
handled by Jesus. He took it and he was raised from the dead so that the person who believes in him is now considered righteous in the sight of God. It's very clear in the New Testament. How about one example? Romans 3.21 and following. But now, <clears throat> but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Did you hear that? The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So if you're among those who have trusted now in Jesus, not yourself, not your rituals, not your religious background, not even your baptism, I'm trusting Jesus, you have faith in him, you are made righteous. It's a glorious exchange. This is the beauty of Christianity. That we come to Jesus aware of our sin. We come humbly. We come distressed about our sin. We see we're disqualified from heaven because we have no righteousness. So we come admitting that to God, asking Jesus to save us. And the most amazing thing happens. His righteousness is credited to us. When God looks at us because we're in union to Christ through, through our faith, God sees us as righteous. And now the qualification for heaven has been met by Jesus for us who were sinners. Paul experienced it, and he described it in his testimony in Philippians 3, 7 through 9. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, catch it, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Oh, we must have faith in Jesus Christ. So if you want to go to heaven, Jesus says, you got to have something other than your rule keeping. You got to have something other than the rituals you've been looking at. You need righteousness. And Jesus provides a righteousness that's an inside-out righteousness. And so it, he, he begins it on the inside. He gives it to you when you trust in him. But yes, indeed, he intends for this righteousness he puts in you to show up outside of you. He makes you positionally righteous in the sight of God, but he wants it to show up in practical righteousness as you live it out. So think about it. He gives you a righteousness that's internal and external. It's in your heart, but it shows up in your actions. The righteousness that of Christ, when you believe in him, will shape your attitudes, but also your behaviors. The righteousness of Christ in you as a believer will shape even your motives, and it will show up in your deeds. Remember how Jesus started his sermon in the Beatitudes? He said, blessed are the pure in heart. It's going to be in you. But then he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Well, that's going to show up in your life, what God has worked into you. We've all met ungodly religious people, haven't we? Somebody who's a member of a church and they're the biggest jerk you know. You met them, right? And they're thinking, I'm scoring points with God. I mean, I go to church. What more would God want from me? They might've been baptized seven times or something. I did, I did something external and I'm, my ticket's punched. I'm good, but they're a scoundrel. They're immoral and they're not sorry. They're not broken over their sin. What is that? That's Phariseeism. That's not what Jesus is talking about. You've got to have a righteousness that surpasses hypocrisy if you want to be ever in heaven. These are the words of Jesus here. So you and I want to avoid two extremes. 
We want to avoid lawless living where we say, well, I'm saved. I can do anything I want to. You haven't met Jesus if you think that way. It's true. If you're saved through Jesus Christ, you're, you're, you're going to make some mistakes, and you're, you're very remorseful when that happens. You, you run back to Jesus. I am so sorry. I can't believe I did that, thought that, said that, or refused to obey you. God, forgive me. That's true, but we can't be lawless because of grace. Neither can we become legalists, where some people feel like I have a list of don'ts. I don't do this, I don't do this, I don't do this, and I don't do that. And because I don't do those four things, then I know I'm going to heaven. That's legalism, where you think by your works or by what you don't do, comparing yourself to others, well, I'm going to heaven. You've got to have a righteousness that surpasses that, and it's found in Jesus Christ. Years ago, Joy and I knew some Christians who, nice people, but they were more of the legalistic variety. Showed up in a number of ways, but one of those was this, when it came to not going to the movie theater. Not because of what movie was playing there, but just the movie theater itself is bad. And so I uh, remember Billy Graham had one of his evangelistic movies coming to the theater. And we thought, oh, that's wonderful. And, and the idea with those Billy Graham movies back in the day was you'd invite a friend to watch the movie. But these particular Christians would be like, I, I don't go to the movie house, as they called it. But interestingly, as you got to know them, they would read a lot of stuff that was pretty inappropriate. And they'd watch movies on, I think, VHS back in those days <laughs> that was like very inappropriate, like, I would never watch the movie you're watching at home, but you won't go see a Billy Graham. So it somehow got to be an external thing. It's the movie house is bad, but I can watch whatever I want. Forgetting that, no, I want to guard my mind and my heart from the garbage. Doesn't matter where I consume it. We want to avoid that type of hip, hypocritical, external only type of righteousness. So see how critical it begins, verse 20, as we close. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Righteousness is required. And you and I have none on our own. How do we get it? Humble yourself. Come to Jesus for righteousness. Come to Jesus. Tell him, I have not been righteous. Tell him, I have sinned against you. And, and I'm sorry. And I need your forgiveness. I want you to cleanse me. Make me righteous. You're the only one who can, Jesus. You lived perfectly. You died for me. You were raised for that. I'm trusting only you make me righteous. Listen, he'll do it. If you come humbly and you ask him, he'll do it. He'll adopt you as one of his children. He will prepare a place for you in heaven forever. Come to Jesus. It's a free gift he wants to give to you if you will turn and trust in him. Let's pray together.